in five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Danielle. Oh, and this is Daniel. <laughs> and this is Carla. We are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Welcome. Hello. Welcome to my back. <laughs> Welcome to my back. What is that? <laughs> I think it was from you were at Disney. <laughs> and who was it? Neil Patrick Harris. Okay. Yeah. Told some joke up there on stage. I said, Welcome to my back. It's okay. You know, it's okay. I don't really remember what happened. So he was like, it was like their second performance of the night. So the people who were standing behind him, yes, was like, said, welcome to my, my back. back. Oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't know why I remember. There's that. hand motions involved. Yes. All right. This uh, mostly takes place in like Maryland, D.C. type area, hmm. but it, it spans decades. In the early morning hours of January 11th, 1985, Thomas Stewart, a 30-year-old fry cook, finished his late shift at Roy Rogers and started his regular walk home alone in the cold after the restaurant closed. On the sidewalk, he spotted a stranger walking in the opposite direction. The man spoke as he passed, and Tom nodded hello back. The man looked to be in his 30s and attractive. Tom liked him immediately. Hello. As the man continued walking northwest on the thoroughfare, he turned and followed him. He wanted to meet him. He tailed the stranger beneath the train overpass and up to a brick row house on Quincy Place. Tom watched the man walk inside the house, presumably to his family. Tom turned to renew his walk home, which was even longer now. Still, he wanted to meet the stranger. He found himself walking faster and faster toward home, excited, telling himself he'd see the man at least one more time. Who's the creeper in this story? Oh, oh man. And this came from Washington City Paper Letters or Washington City Paper, Letters from an Arsonist. So this, a lot of it is correspondence, a reporter to this guy after he's been arrested. Mm -hmm. And Daniel gets to read those parts. All right. Yeah. At home, Tom stripped off his Roy Rogers uniform and threw on casual clothes. He borrowed his sister's car and headed back toward the house on Quincy. There was just one stop to make, at the gas station, where he topped off an empty two-liter soda bottle with gasoline, placed into his bag along with a towel. He parked near Quincy Place, got out of the car with his bag. On the front porch, he poured the gasoline beneath the front door, held it there with a towel, and then struck a match. The vapors ignited in the front hallway. Smoke Wait. started pouring out beneath the door. I'm doing sound effects too, right? Yeah. So he filled up a two liter of gasoline. And didn't put it in the car. He like put the lid, like got it with him. But he didn't put it into the car. No, he put it in a two liter soda bottle. Got it. Soda okay. pop. That sounds good. Bomb, 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 bomb. The vapors ignited in the front hallway and smoke started pouring out beneath the door. Tom then hopped back into his sister's car. On the second floor of the house, a man woke to find his bedroom in flames. On the same floor were his wife, his daughter, and his stepdaughter, and in the basement were his son and stepson. Tom circled the block in his car and came back to the house. On the front porch, the man stood in nothing but his underwear. The man had escaped through a window, but not before suffering asphyxia from smoke as well as first and second and third degree burns over 60% of his body. Ooh. Yeah, burning. Uh, he must have been too panicked to register his injuries. He was screaming that his wife and kids were still inside. Tom fled the scene. It took 85 firefighters more than 45 minutes to get the fire under control. The boys escaped unharmed. The two girls emerged from the back of the house, each badly burned. The mother did not survive and the medical examiner on the scene determined she died of burns and asphyxia. Mm -hmm. and an this is why if you light a fire, even if it's an accident and you kill someone, you get automatically charged with first degree murder. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, arson is a class A felony. Or is it felony. second degree? 
Oh, no, it's a class A felony, just so, arson yeah. to begin with. It's like, Right. In the official report, an investigator assigned a cause. The fire started as a result of carelessly dropped cigarette in the bedding on the second floor bedroom. Oh, so they wasn't even right. Strange, considering no one in the house smoked. What? They're like, sir, we don't smoke. When he saw the fire in the news, Tom learned the name of the man he just made a widow, a widower. That's right. Yeah. Roy Picot. He also learned the name of the deceased, Bessie May Duncan. Tom was saddened to learn of her death, but in his mind, she was simply the collateral damage he had incurred in service to his fantasies. Will you please read paragraph one? Oh, my God. <laughs> I kept up with all the news reports about my fires and others that they did not know about. I have a diary of fires. <laughs> a fiery. If you will. That's not what it says. No, though. but a fiery, if you oh, will. okay. <laughs> that I put away elsewhere for. I knew someday the ATF would ask for it. I still believe in my mind that the Lord God Almighty brought them, the ATF, people to me because it was time for all this to stop. 30 years of fires. It was like, come get me. I'm tired. Jail cannot be worse than the life I had then, and believe it or not, life is pretty much the same. It's just I'm not free to go wherever I want to. Hmm. Wow. Damn. For Tom, different fires grew out of different feelings, many out of the sense of powerlessness, others out of spite, some even out of love. But more than anything else, his decades-long rampage was about sexual fantasy. Oh, God. Please read paragraph two. Why did I set the fires when I set them? That's an all-too-familiar question that cannot be understood if you don't know the story. There were different reasons for most of the fires. It could be because of one's feeling the need to have power about something or someone. I don't want you to I don't want you driving that car so the fire becomes a weapon to destroy it. Or in case of some house fires, I might like a particular style of house and wish one day to own it, but it's only a dream. Fire is a tool to destroy some houses also becomes my fantasy spelled P H A N T A S Y. Odd. Of people scrambling to exit windows and sort of feel like they need my help, so I stay and watch. Then I'd masturbate over the fire <laughs> while driving away from the scene. Oh, it my gets God. worse, and I didn't want you to read it because of this. <laughs> it gets so much worse. Okay. In 1992, for a few hundred bucks a month, he rented an apartment in a two-story brick house in a relatively poor neighborhood. On days off from work, he would read do-it-yourself books. He and his sister sidelined in home renovation. Uh, once Tom moved out, the neighborhood started burning. Vacant building fires, home fires, door fires. He burned the garage that stood behind his apartment. He burned the neighborhood carry-out, carry which I don't know what that is, and the neighborhood laundromat. What a dick. So when, all the shit around him caught fire and nobody like figured mm, it out? Okay. Well, because they were always thrown off by the guy sitting at the scene masturbating. Right. It could never be Who him. wants to approach that guy? <laughs> when he was on the receiving end of a bad haircut at Kenny and Paul's barbershop, he came back later and torched the place. The barbershop rebounded, but when Tom tried, got tired of the addicts who took up to hanging on the block, he torched it again. <laughs> Yikes. Read paragraph three, please. There were lots of barbershops and carryouts, as well as gas stations. I like barbershops because there were, there were always attractive men there. Crazy it may sound, I had a fascination for barbers. <laughs> Think he ever went a Sweeney Todd for uh, Halloween? Yeah. Oh, God. 
Throughout the 80s and 90s, Tom lit scores of fires throughout the eastern side of D.C. After he bought a used Toyota in 2001, Tom started to venture out more. He now had access to all the streets where he worked, as well as the cozy... That's what gives me the confidence to go out and drive, you know, and show off my used Toyota Camry. (laughs) As well as the cozy street line middle-class neighborhood of Prince George County, which became a favorite stomping ground. Please read paragraph four. Paragraph four. There was one fire at South U Drive in Maryland, a whole complex under construction, which damaged net $1 million because of pipeline explosion. That was a huge fire that could have been seen and heard a mile away. It was amazing to watch. This was one of the fires I was never connected to. Each fire was like doing the first time, and I'd always take a deep breath and ask the Lord to forgive me for what I'm about to do. Each one was special in its own way. Oh, goodness. In the spring of 2003... Oh, wait. Do you have a comment? Question? No. (laughs) Well, I have a lot of concerns. Yeah. 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 In the spring of 2003, Tom paid a price for his jurisdiction hopping. A couple of fire officials from D.C. and Prince George's County were swapping notes at a promotional exam when they realized that a rash of suspicious fires had been set along their shared border. The fires had a number of features in common. The homes were mostly detached and single family. The fires were set on porches or near doorways, and they were set in the early morning hours. Forensic tests at an ATF lab determined that each fire was set with the same kind of device, some sort of plastic jug that had been filled with gasoline and carried to the scene inside a plastic bag. Just before dawn, there was a house fire in a middle-class suburb of Washington, D.C. Firefighters put it out before anyone was hurt, but it was clear. It was deliberately set. There was someone in the home at the time. He had to have known it, and he didn't seem to care. The fire originated on the front porch, where investigators found remnants of a melted plastic gallon container and a cloth wick. There was some fabric material that was present, uh, which turned out to be consistent with an athletic sock. This was the second fire in the city in less than a week. Both had been set the same way, with an accelerant inside a plastic one-gallon container. A gas chromatography test of the debris identified the accelerant as gasoline. They were being set in the early morning hours between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. They were occurring at single-family residences, and the origin of the fire was being found either in the front porch or the rear porch of these homes. The cloth wick gave the arsonist plenty of time to get away. None of us had seen that type of device before. We were so used to having Molotov cocktails where they were lighting them, throwing them against the structure. This was one that was actually being placed against the structure, and basically you're lighting it and walking away. Victims appeared to have nothing to do with one another. The D.C.'s arsonist fires were scattered. Their locations suggest that the fire setter liked greenery near the homes, and he preferred low-income working-class neighborhoods. Most of the fires had been set near exits. The arsonist apparently hoped to kill or at least terrify the people inside. Well, fire is terrifying. Yes. I mean. To learn more about how these fires unfolded, agents recreated models of the arsonist's devices performing stage burns at the lab and out in the field on homes slated for demolition. I've seen controlled burns, like firefighters doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Like They were surprised by what they found. When the wick was lit, a gallon jug filled with gasoline didn't ignite as one might suspect. Gasoline itself doesn't burn. Its vapors do. 
which I didn't know that. I didn't either. The narrow opening in the top of the jug allowed only so many vapors to escape at a time. The gasoline itself acted as a coolant, letting the device burn as slowly and steadily as a kerosene lamp. It could be 21 minutes before the jug's plastic melted, allowing the gasoline and its accompanying vapors to spread across the porch. Once it did, the fire would reach the wood or aluminum siding. So it, he has like a getaway time. It's almost like lighting a fuse on dynamite. It's however, running. yeah. Investigators from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, found another interesting item in the debris. Remnants of plastic shopping bags revealed how the arsonist carried the containers of gasoline and avoided detection. Investigators urged citizens to be on the lookout for individuals carrying plastic shopping bags in the middle of the night between 2 and 6 a.m. The public needs to know this. They need to know they have a serial arsonist in their neighborhood, just like you need to know there's a rapist working in your neighborhood. But it didn't help. Over the next two weeks, there were four more fires, all within a few miles of one another, all set with gasoline inside a plastic gallon container placed on a porch. Investigators asked the surrounding fire departments to compile a list of all suspicious fires over the past year that started on the front porch of a home between 2 and 6 o'clock in the morning. The results were astonishing. There were 20 additional fires, all set when people were inside the homes. There was a learning curve like anything else, says Scott Fulkerson, an agent with the ATF who served as one of the lead investigators on the case. His fire setting was based on convenience, and when it came to finding a wick, nothing... Well, of course. Why, you know... <laughs> it needs to be somewhat convenient because, right. you know, if you feel inconvenienced, it's going to make it more difficult to masturbate while you're watching the fire. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Do you think there's, he there's my critical analysis. Like, did he carry of... lotion with him then? Like, is that, <laughs> is that enough? Is it... <laughs> Never mind. I don't want to know. I don't oh, God. Well, I mean, you should know. No, I don't want to know. You've done it enough no, times. No. no. Uh, oh, oh, an old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And when it came to finding a wick, nothing was more convenient than a swatch from your own clothes. So he would cut up his own damn clothing to light shit on fire. He didn't realize that every time he tied such an item to a jug and ran, the risk of implant implementing his DNA at the crime scene. The fire setter's carelessness gave investigators their first break. At about 3 a.m. on one day in September 2003, three boys who'd been out partying for the night returned to their home on Anacostia Avenue. They saw a strange man sitting on their front porch. After a brief exchange, the man played like he was lost and walked off. So they caught him before he was about to burn their house down. Oh, damn. But they didn't realize that's what they were, you know, caught him doing. They're like, what the fuck are you doing on our porch? He left behind a plastic shopping bag. In it was a gasoline-filled juice jug that had a piece of cloth tied to the handle. Investigators were called to the scene, and in the bottom of the bag, they discovered a single strand of hair. The lab examined the hair and performed a DNA test, determining it probably belonged to a black male. Almost 20 years after working the late shift at Roy Rogers, Tom was still toiling in the fast food business. He worked at KFC, where he'd come on board in 1993. I had KFC for lunch I, yesterday. I know, wow. it made me think of it. <laughs> it, was, it was quite delicious. His job was his life. Tom would devote a rather astonishing 12 years to the same KFC location. Wow. Most of it spent hovering over the grill and grease fires. Yike it. 
Toiling away in the service industry affirmed what he believed since childhood, that he was an oddball, the lone failure in an otherwise successful clan. Ever since his early years, he knew he was wired differently. Please read paragraph five. Paragraph five. As a child growing up, I never did the normal thing. Like learning how to ride a bike, play sports, do boyish things. Instead, I wanted to play house out in the woods, making straw houses. Pretending to be the lady next door and dare my brothers to enter my house without knocking. It was funny. We used to call each other Mrs. Lady. So they're per- they're setting up breaking and entering like on each other and pretending to be a woman. Interesting. Us that, yeah. is, that, is, that is interesting. Oh. I get aroused just the thought of big shoes and big pattern leather boots. From childhood all the way up to even now, I always wondered why I like to masturbate over my uncle's shoes. Oh my god. Sleep with them in his bed when he's away. My father's shoes too. I would masturbate over his big black shiny shoes. Crazy stuff, right? But no one never found out these obsessions I have. There were a few one night stands, so to speak, but nothing to hold on to. I don't look to have a romantic relationship as normal human beings would. Love, roses, and red wine sort of things. Mine was more of a choosing the person for for crazy reasons, like, oh, he has a nice funky walk. (laughs) Most of these experiences ended violently. It really goes all the way back to childhood. Never felt loved by a family. And even now I say I love them, but it's very hard to feel in my heart. You masturbate over your dad's shoes. That's not weird. That's not weird. (laughs) When he sought companionship, he cruised the city's gay underbelly near the Navy Yard clubs. He liked men with athletic builds, though sometimes he would find him a- himself attracted to someone for an inexplicable reason, like the size of his feet, 11 to 12 were his favorite, or an unusual gait. Pigeon toes made him swoon. Well, Please read paragraph well, six. who doesn't? Hey, wait a second. I'm kind of pigeon toed. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, you are. <laughs> I don't know how big your shoes are. Is that bad? Should I know that? <sighs> I went cruising up Georgia Avenue and picked up this young guy named Tyrone. We became best of friends until I became obsessed with him, which drove me to set his house afire. Well, Tyrone was a boxer and very handsome. The night before the fire, I went inside the basement of the place he lived and took all of his clothes and tennis shoes. He wore a size 12 shoe. That was attractive to me, and I would actually go to bed with his shoes on my pillow to smell the odor. Lord help us. It's very interesting. I feel like I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Immersion therapy. Mm-hmm. In June 2003, a raging two-alarm fire on Everett Street claimed the life of 86-year-old Luedna Jones. Investigators had hoped the blaze was accidental. When forensic tests proved their arsonist had been behind it, they found the fire deeply troubling. 86-year-old Luedna Jones was unable to get out of her home and died of smoke inhalation. She had five children. 15 grandchildren and 20 great-grandchildren all were traumatized by this senseless act of violence. I have been so heartbroken. I will never be the same again. And I mean the way she left here. A senseless death because someone wanted their kids to sit back and watch a fire. How cold-hearted could you be? This is a first-degree murder. We knew that not only had he killed one person that we knew of in the past, was it going to happen again?
They had already linked another fire from the same night set about two and a half miles away near RFK Stadium, just 50 minutes before the one on Everett's, which meant their arsonists had no problem lighting doubles, as they called a pair of fires set one after the other. So, like, you're needing more and more. So, they were aware that, like... Oh, yeah. They're someone like, was setting these fires. But it's like, how do you know who? Because at the time, 2003, not everyone had, like... Yes. You know, everyone has security cameras or whatever mm-hmm. around their house now. But back then, they might not have had that. Read paragraph seven, please. Paragraph seven. It's hard to think for about three years or more that she's been dead. And I often pray for forgiveness and ask God to help the victims' families cope their, with their struggles. I didn't know her grandson personally, but saw him get the mail out of the mailbox on the front porch. And he was tall and has a muscular build. And I wanted to meet him. So I would live out my fantasy. Again, spelled with a PH. Through fire watching him jump out the window for help and come running to me, I raced home to watch the news and was saddened about the fatality, but was fascinated by this huge fire. Wow. I'll always remember this house. As I sat there with my finger in my butt, Quit it. <laughs> oh. oh. No, no time for improv? <laughs> well, I guess you could if you wanted to. Okay. No, so he would see a guy and be like, oh, you're attractive, but you walk into your house. Instead of me knocking on the door and being like, I like you, can I have your number? He was like, I'm going to set it on fire. And when you climb out of the windows, pretend like you would come running to me even though you never do. Well, that's one way to do it. We started to figure we needed to go way back, says ATF agent Tom Daly. They visited Firehouse in the arsonist's favorite neighborhood and poured over old run books, dissecting logs that included a handwritten entry for every fire a truck has been called to. They looked for any suspicious-looking fire set on porches. Even more disheartening, catching the arsonist in the act seemed nearly impossible. Up to 55 agents were working the case at a given time. Uh, Tom found a thrill in walking among the agents who were hunting him, his ego satisfied knowing he was always a step ahead. Please read paragraph 8. Paragraph fate. I liked the attention from setting fires. The blue plus red lights flashing from the fire trucks plus police cars. The rushing of firefighters hooking up the hose to put out the flames and people gathered to watch. They were an arm's length to arrest me. Ooh. <sighs> there were different theories on his travels. Some investigators believe he changed his game because he knew that he- they'd gotten close to him. In fact, there was a psychological element to the expansion. Over time, fire setting, like sex, can grow old and boring. Tom started branching out into new counties simply because he was getting bored. Just like uh-huh. the same old places. I got to spice it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> After two fires in November 2003, he set another just days before Christmas at a home in New Carrollton. That's lovely. Yep. That's just lovely. A nearby hotel gave them a tape that dumbfounded them. In the footage, a fire truck races to the burning home, facing the other way, with someone in a stopped car flashing his lights on at the oncoming engine. So, like, flicking your brights at someone. Mm-hmm. Why would somebody do that? Fulkerson remembers asking himself. Agents did everything they could to enhance the video, even sending it off to NASA. But the license plate and the make of the car was hopelessly grainy. So, again, back in 2003... Then on Valentine's Day 2004, he lit one of his devices on the stairwell of an apartment building in Montgomery County, where investigators had never followed him. Because the fire started between the first and second floors, it blocked residents on upper floors from coming down the stairs. A woman and her two daughters were forced to sprint through the flames to escape. This guy's fucked up. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, but I'm really sorry about that. I didn't mean for anyone to die. 
The fire never fully destroyed its starting device, a shopping bag, a gallon jug, and a swatch from a pair of black slacks. These items went to the Montgomery County Crime Lab. Even though the cloth from the slacks had been burned and charred, the technician was able to extract a trace amount of DNA. In most of the fires set by the Washington, D.C. arsonist, the incendiary device went up in flames. But in one case, a piece of the wick, which was a cloth sock, survived. On a hunch, scientists swabbed the cloth with sterile water, put the swab in a vial, and added a digest buffer that eliminates everything except human cells. Miraculously, the sock contained skin cells, and they provided a DNA profile, presumably of the arsonist. To have such good DNA results for an arson case is pretty remarkable. When you think about the quality of the evidence in terms of how, how burned or um, how, how much heat it may have been subjected to, it's excellent to be able to obtain results. Unfortunately, the DNA profile did not match any in the database of known criminal offenders. <laughs> That's impressive. It gives you a great feeling for 24 hours, Daly says. But then the next day, it's like, what's his name? I have no idea. So all they have is DNA, but no one, I guess they, if they run it through the system, no one came up. He had dinner. 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 And it came up with dinner. <laughs> what they had was DNA, not a suspect. Without a name, they had nothing but theories. Some entertained the idea that the arsonist was affiliated with law enforcement, firefighting, or the military. And in the strangest way, he was. If Tom could have been anything other than a fry cook, he would have been a Marine. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> okay. You know, it's a big jump up. Well, if I wasn't in logistics, I would be the Queen of England. So, <laughs> so yeah. All <laughs> 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 hail the Queen. <laughs> he once tried to enlist in the Navy in 1976 when he was 21 years old. He passed the aptitude test but failed the physical. He never forgot the rejection. That's how I felt. Yep. He's <laughs> being queen. They're like, no. They did, I didn't pass the physical. They said, oh. <laughs> they said, these are far too big and would knock over far too many things. <laughs> too many vodka sodas over here. So keep your titties away. <laughs> oh. <sighs> he thought duty and courage were beautiful things, and nothing embodied those traits so crisply as a military uniform. The sight of a young black man in marine dress blue sent him into a fits of lust. Carla. <laughs> we're, in, we're definitely going to get complaints now. Uh, <laughs> this happened often. The greater D.C. area offered plenty of bases and barracks for military fetishists to visit when he needed to. Military fetishist? Mm-hmm. He would drive out of the city to military recruiting stations. Sometimes he would film them from his car and later masturbate to the videos. At home, he dressed as a Marine and puttered around the apartment, playing the role for no audience but himself. To dress up at home and not. He was never, he never wore the uniform outside. That's how you outside. perfect your craft, Danielle. Uh, yep. True. Mm -hmm. His fantasies accompanied all kinds of civil servants who wore uniforms, police officers, firefighters, even bus drivers. He reported false fires on his block just to bring the engines out. He sometimes lingered at the scenes of fires he'd set himself, capturing footage with his camera. He became addicted to his homemade pornography. Uh-huh. Anything can be addicting, apparently. 
apparently. Please read paragraph He nine. was calling on fires that weren't real? Yeah, just to bring all the engines out. Oh like, my hubbub. gosh, I can't handle this. I burned door. police cruisers parked at the station and some that were at the residence. To me, they seemed to have power because of their badge and gun, and I felt powerful through fire when they lost their vehicles. Some of the burned cars would remain at the spot for many days. I'd drive back that night and just stare and smell the smoke. I must have masturbated a hundred times a day. Know that feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to... That was my side note. That wasn't actually in the writing. (laughs) That's all I wanted to do was make tapes and come home and watch them. Now, the other thing, though, is if someone had an older cop car, all he really did was screw the insurance company because the police officer got all brand new equipment. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was aroused by the snug blue uniforms and the caps of the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. So just regular people now. The the Transit Authority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. He would hang around the city bus depots and watch the drivers as they started their routes. Many of the drivers parked their personal cars across the street in the parking lot outside a liquor store. He would set his devices beneath their car's undercarriage and light them. The sexier the car, the better the fantasy. The guy's a dick. Please read paragraph 10. It was a 2004 Mustang, white, 5.0, that had been on the list of cars to burn for a long time. That morning, it parked right beside me, and the operator looked at me, shut his door, and walked away, not knowing that's the last time he'd drive that pretty sort of hot rod-like ride. I must have waited 20 minutes for the lot to fill up with other cars so that no one would come back to mess up the plan. His car was destroyed along another sexy car parked beside it, as well as the top of the wall of the liquor store. Damn. Damn. Investigators knew from the bags left behind at the fire scenes that the arsonist shopped at convenience stores. The company supplied their black bags to just two shops in the D.C. area. They were oh. Circle 7 convenience stores. I almost said Circle K. Do we have Circle 7? We here? have Circle K. Yeah. With the cooperation of the owner of the two Circle 7 stores, agents affixed thumbnail-sized stainless steel chips to the bottom of every single bag in both stores. I don't know how you do that. I don't, I don't know. So they, okay, and what did that do? Hold on. Each chip was marked accordingly to an alphanumeric code going in order through the stack. If one of the bags were to be involved in a fire, the chip would survive. And because agents went to the store daily to track which bags had been used, they would be able to go to the video to see which customer had purchased the bag from the fire. So they'd, they're putting little metal tags in every single goddamn plastic bag in two convenience stores. And then if one of the metal tabs survives being set on a porch and in the fire... Then they know when to go back and look at the tape and see who bought that bag right? or used the bag and took it with him. On December 5th, 2004, a strange clue turned up a block from the scene of a house fire, a Marine Corps cap and dress pants. The lab determined that the DNA from the pants matched the DNA found on the other fire scene. So that hair they found and now some military uniform pieces that are just out of fire. So he's probably rubbing one off into them. That's what I would assume. As the black bags were put into circulation, investigators discovered something else. An arson dog detected gasoline on a pair of military dress pants discarded across the street from one of the fires. They were the type worn by the Marines. Scientists swabbed the waistband 
and discovered human skin cells. The DNA profile of these skin cells matched the hair found on the incendiary device and the skin cells from the burned wick. Fire investigators contacted the Naval Criminal Investigation Service about the pair of marine pans found across the street from one of the arson fires. Investigators started to think their arsonist was a jarhead. Agents from the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, couldn't offer them DNA profiles of current Marines, but they did have a couple of leads on old barracks-related car fires. A car captured on video leaving the scene of a fire had been traced back to a man who lived right around the corner from the Circle 7 store. His name was Thomas Anthony Sweat. Sweat. Sweat was his last name. Okay. Ironically. Investigators started surveillance on Mr. Sweat. He appeared to be an average working schlub, a loyal KFC employee with only minor brushes with the law, and yet something seemed off about him. His meticulousness. As Faulkner stalked him out of the KFC one day, he watched from his unmarked car as Tom walked outside the restaurant, got down on his knees, and started scraping stale gum from the cracks in the sidewalk. Man, she's got nothing better to do. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. The next day, Faulkner told Tom he was looking for help in a serial arsonist case. So he just walked into KFC and was like, can you help me? He wanted to know if Tom had seen anything. Finally, he asked him point blank, did you set the fires? Tom answered, why would I set those beautiful homes on fire when I'm trying to become a homeowner myself? <laughs> it's like, well, that doesn't really exclude you. Fulkerson asked Tom to submit a DNA test and he agreed. When Tom got home, he destroyed his fiery, his diarrhea fires. <laughs> the swab of saliva went off to the lab, and days later, the crime tech had her results. She called Fulkerson and gave him what he had been waiting for for nearly two years, a name. It's Thomas Sweat, she said. He was arrested the morning of April 27, 2005, as, his, as he left a regional meeting for KFC employees. He maintained his innocence for about an hour and a half. <laughs> Love this guy. Before breaking down and admitting to the fires. As a stipulation of any plea agreement that might be offered, the government insisted the investigators be able to interview Tom about his motives. They wanted to seize the rare opportunity to profile the mind of an extraordinary fire setter. At times, he choked up and cried. He admitted to killing not only Luedna Jones, but another elderly woman named Annie Brown, 89, who died of smoke inhalation in February of 2002. Tom hadn't been considered as a suspect in that fire until investigators discovered a news clip about the blaze in his apartment. One of Tom's only requests was to meet Blackwell, the task force spokesperson who had addressed him through the media. So he liked, you know, you have they're doing press reports and you have one person who usually does the press reports and they're usually in their uniforms when they're giving these statements. So he would pleasure himself to this guy in particular who was reading his like updates on the arson investigation and he's in his uniform with his badge on so he wanted to meet the guy he'd been rubbing one out to oh no (laughs) he told blackwell he was sorry for all the headaches blackwell told him it's okay the whole thing was over now tom signed a secret plea guilty plea within two weeks of his arrest he asked for and received a promise of confidentiality in exchange for his guilty plea about the only thing that came out in court was that Sweat said he heard voices and that he set fires to relieve stress. If the demons in your head told you to set a fire, if you were so stressed out 
that you had to set a fire, why didn't you set your own mother's house on fire? So see, that's why you can't say this man was insane. He had very good sense. He had sense enough not to get caught. Thomas Sweat was sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole, plus another 135 years in prison, all because of that rarest of forensic clues, DNA that survived the heat of a fire. There aren't many cases that are in history of this magnitude and the investigative techniques that were used, the task force concept, how well it worked. I mean, it really is a model that you're not going to see in any other area. With his help, investigators closed over 353 fires. He's probably the most prolific wow. arsonist ever. And that was all he could remember, stretching back into the 80s. After sentencing, Tom Sweat was quickly sent to the United States Penitentiary of Terre Haute, Indiana. Okay. The Fibby. You set things on fire. The Fibby comes for you. The famously rough prison where Timothy McVeigh was put to death. Barring a transfer, he will spend the rest of his life there. And I forgot to check if he's actually still there. <laughs> okay, but like, did they cha like charge him on every single count? I don't know how many he pleaded to, but enough he'll never... I, I don't know if it was like 200. It might have been two life sentences and then another 200 years after that. Uh, that something. would make sense. Yeah. How many people did he end up actually killing? It, well, the... De okay. There was... Two old women, another old woman, the widow, the widow eventually died too. Mm -hmm. The one where they said it was a cigarette from the house of no one smoked. I don't know, at least four people, probably more. Wow. But, um, oh, read paragraph 12. You're going to finish this out. My sister in Ohio sent pictures of her house I never seen. And her yard is beautiful. She has real grass that looks like carpet and flowers are real pretty. Her neighborhood reminds me of the Birchwood community in Oxon Hill, Maryland. My mind started to think of evil things to do in that neighborhood. That's so sad. Those demons are still in me. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Wow. I found that to be interesting. I it's mean, it's sad and mm -hmm. I think it was fucked up that he set the apartment on fire knowing people couldn't get out. Yeah, it's like, I didn't mean to start the fire. I just wanted to watch things burn. Oh, wait, no, I meant to start the no, fire. I mean, I meant to, but like, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to get hurt. Oh, darn. And then even, I think at one point he even says, well, it brings me comfort. It brings me comfort knowing that God forgives me. And it's like, what? What? When did he say that? I don't know, but it's like I feel like you're taking big liberties with this. Like, yeah. So wow. I, I'm sure he doesn't feel guilty, really. And he's like, my family doesn't really love me. It's like funny, weird, and weird that you would think that <laughs> that had to be Mr. Oh. Sweat, Mr. Sweat, sweaty. I listened to Dumb and Busted, and this is like their fifth episode. And when they were newer, and I was on the tractor, so it was in the summer, and I was, like, cracking up. Um, so if you want to listen to Dumb and Busted, their name is Dumb and Busted. Uh, they only do, theirs is, like, um, they do a genius and an idiot section. So, like, oh. a smart criminal and then a really dumb criminal. So they didn't. So Which one is this? I don't think it's a smart one because he got away with it for so yeah. long. So, but since they're doing half and half, the story on her side is let. Like, I covered more stuff, like having Daniel read all of that shit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he was real into shoes and fires and masturbating. Even church. All at the same time. Amen. 
All at the same time. Shoes, fires, masturbation. Isn't that our next saying then? Shoes, fires. We're picking on my hobbies. <laughs> um, so yeah, he even when church members would come over, he'd wait for them to like go outside and smoke a cigarette and like hide in the bushes and jack off to like their patent leather shoes or like his. He goes, those shoes were orange. I I wonder if he still has those shoes. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, sir, like a shoe. Yes, I understand that. Like people buy shoes that fit their style, but mm-hmm. like you can get shoes anywhere, mm-hmm. and people become sexual sexually aroused by. Bizarre things. I'm not saying I'm just, and I'm saying like it's not like shoes are hard to come by. No, I think it's part of who's wearing them. Got to be eleven or twelve. That has to be part of it Mm -hmm. because I'm like the shoes. You can just go to any store and buy shoes. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's got to be. He has to know who was in them, like his own dad. That's so creepy. That is so creepy. So wrong. Maybe he had a foot fetish. I think so. And foot fetish. There's nothing wrong with your foot fetish as long as you have a consenting partner. It's fine. Feet. I'm not a foot fetish person. But it's fine if you are. Yeah. It's not okay. <laughs> if you steal the person's shoes and do things to them without their consent. Yeah. It was like voyeurism. That's a fetish. But that's not a consenting partner unless it, like they are and they don't know that you're watching them. No. Go ahead. You've never stuck your willy inside of a of a size 11 and pretended it was just a woman with a big vagina? What? The stinky shoe smell in vagina? Yeah. Oh, my God. Why Longus. else is it so wide? Fungus. Among us. <laughs> Insane. One of the most prolific arsonists to date, I think. And it is a federal crime, so they will put you in Terre Haute. I should double check and see if he's still there. Yeah. Um, I think the, there's a Forensic Files episode on something very similar, but it's not. I know it's not the same case because it happened in California. Okay. Less fetishes, but it reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. Do they grade arsonists on uh, number of fatalities or number of fires i think fires. fires okay yeah because he had like over 350 fires they connected to him that's it's so, so many it's so much time like an effort put into fires. nobody ever caught on that he was just going to the gas station and filling up a fucking two liter with gas all the time all the time okay yeah just Ten always, fucking four yep he, here comes tommy with his two liter soda bottle looking for gas <laughs> Wonder what he's doing with all of it. He's hoarding it for the price and gas spiking. So he's Honestly, saving it. you could you could have said that. Mm-hmm. I would have believed you. I would yeah. have oh, okay, yeah. inflation of gas prices. Yeah. yeah. Back then, it was probably fifty cents a gallon. Less than that, maybe. Has it ever been that cheap? I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Can't relate. <laughs> <laughs> Get what? I mean, not in two thousand three. No, but he was doing this all the way back in the eighties. So you're yeah. right. It would look suspicious going to the same gas station all the time with your goddamn two liter filling it up with gas and waddling off like like that's not a normal thing I'm, what is it? i'm burning tires in my backyard it'd be different if you put it in like a fucking gas can mm-hmm. yeah maybe they just assumed he couldn't afford a gas can that's, nope, that's okay true. that's okay. true All it right. is a poor neighborhood he picked poor neighborhoods yeah working class working some were poor well that's rude because mm-hmm. they were just out here trying to make it happen make it happen Captain. So, yeah, I would have felt real bad for the family, though, that was like, no one smokes, though. And they're like, yeah, but it's your own fault that your parents are dead. You're like, okay, then. Okay. I got to go now. Him writing letters to this reporter might have closed some more cases or brought, like, Mm -hmm. brought more information forward. But then you never know. Are you lying for more attention, claiming more fires? I feel like this individual wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be smart enough to think like that. Yeah, like, you'd have to think of fires and be able to research them. Oh, no. 
I think, he, yeah, he wanted to get caught, though. There, He's like, man, this is going on way too long. And he couldn't stop. Yeah, it's no different than my life outside, except I can't go places. <laughs> okay. And everyone, and there's men. Different. Every, you know, he probably is in hog heaven, all the there's men. No metal sh- there's no leather shoes. No leather oh. shoes. Well, the guards might wear them. Well, the prosecutors when they yeah. come in. <laughs> so his attorney is arguing it's not his fault. He shouldn't have pled guilty, or he's not guilty because of you know mental illness. Because his compulsion, his obsession, it's not your fault. Okay. I feel like he knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> but he couldn't stop, so it's not his fault, man. Okay. Sorry there, Tommy boy. I doubt he will get out. Yeah. And that's about all I have. Well, that was very interesting. It's bizarre. Arson is a bizarre thing. That is, It is strange. I mean, there's another one I've thought about covering... It does involve the death of a child, but it's the thought that arson investigators think they're so smart and that they have fire science figured out to a T, and then you end up putting people away in prison saying there was an accelerant used because the glass cracked a certain way. And it's like, no, it's because it was cold outside and like the perfect So are you like giving all of it away? No, no, I don't know specifically this case, but I know it's a woman who is found guilty of intentionally setting the house on fire with her four-year-old in it. And I was like... It's happened a while ago, and she might have gotten out. Anyways, but that's a big thing is people getting sentenced to death for arson that is solely based on arson investigators and their science later in life proves to be wrong because it's old science. And they're like, no, grass, uh, glass just cracks when it gets hot. It's not you know, from gasoline. So, yeah, it's scary. Science can put you in prison. And then they can say, hey, that science is junk science. We got new science and you don't have to be in prison. But it'll take you 20 years to get out. Okay, you can find oh us on Instagram. Oh, my science. Oh, my science. <laughs> okay, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Who's Your Homicide. We have a Facebook page and we're on all the sites. You can listen to podcasts. Yep, yep. And we have a website. Who's your homicide? Oh, we do? Yeah, yeah, we do. And I have a blog there. And that's where there's more pictures there and stuff. Uh-huh. And we can find our Patreon through that. Daniel and I have one to record. When? I don't know. We need to. After we do the dirty. That's our that's You got to light a fire. Light a fire first. We light Keep a your fire. Shoes on. Keep your shoes on. <laughs> Danielle rubs one out. Yeah, all them Onto shoes. my you shoes. Have, you have more shoes than I do. Yeah, you do. And for honest to goodness... <laughs> Stay out of the corn. <laughs> and my closet. <laughs> Away from my shoes. You sexy leather shoes.